0: ready to get in the word? All right. Well, if you want to follow along in your own Bible this morning, you can turn to Matthew chapter 23. Matthew chapter 23. Now, last Sunday, if you were here, you know we started a new series, something I'd been promising for probably the last six months we'd be, be getting into, which is into the subject of end times, right? End times. And really, I like to break end times into two subcategories as end of the age and end of history. And I'll kind of be differentiating those two things for you guys as we go through the course of this subject of end times. But basically, there's two primary teaching sections in the New Testament that deal extensively with the subject of end times. It's what's known as Jesus's. Olivet Discourse, which is his last great discourse before he has his Last Supper and is arrested. It's in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the most famous uh, part being in Matthew chapter 24. And then the other big section about end times, of course most people know, right, is an entire book. It is the book of Revelation, and that too is primarily uh, the work of Jesus Christ. In fact, the first... uh, Of course, Jesus dictates seven whole letters to John to write down, so he's the author of all of that stuff. And then Jesus is literally showing John, through various angels he's sending him and other things, things to write down. So in many ways, the book of Revelation is pretty much authored by Jesus, too, in in even a more distinct way than the rest of the Bible is. So here we have two large sections of the New Testament, really given by Jesus himself, that deal with the subject of end times, both dealing with two things, the end of the age and the end of history. And what we're doing as we lead up to the time of Easter is we're going to look at that first section of end times. We're going to look at the Olivet Discourse, and we're going to do it by looking at Matthew's Gospel. Then after Easter Sunday, what are we going to do? We're going to dive right into Revelation, where we meet the risen Jesus in Revelation chapter 1, and we're going to see what he has to say about this subject as well. So... Am I cutting out here? You guys all right? All right. Um, So basically, uh, you know, one thing I I mentioned is uh, last Sunday is that uh, the Olivet Discourse is part of Jesus' longer last discourse. And Jesus' longer last discourse begins the moment he enters into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, right, four days before he has his Last Supper and is betrayed to be crucified. And so it covers really Matthew 21, 22, 23, 24, and 25. And the Gospel of Matthew itself is structured in such a way that there are five long discourses, teaching discourses of Jesus. There's the first one in Matthew 5-7, to which is the Sermon on the Mount, and that is And all of these five teaching sections, right, they overlap with an epoch of Israel's history. And it goes sequentially. So the first uh, one, Matthew 5 to 7, the Sermon on the Mount, it ties into the time of Moses. The the second teaching section of Jesus, uh, Matthew 10, uh, it has to do with uh, the conquest of the Promised Land. The third uh, teaching section, Matthew 13, it has to do with, the epoch of the United Kingdom under Saul, David, and Solomon. And the fourth teaching section of Jesus in Matthew 18, it has to do with the fourth epoch in Israel's history, which is the divided kingdom, after it split into the north and to the south, up until the time of exile. And then the fifth teaching section of Jesus, which is what we're looking at in this series, it ties in with the last epoch of Israel's history, which was the destruction of Jerusalem and exile and rebuilding of a new temple. Okay, Now, it's interesting, you know, many pastors who teach on the end times will only hone in on Matthew 24. So they kind of don't lead people into Matthew 21, 2, or 3. But, you know, there's a, there's a big problem with that because uh, if you just look at Matthew 24 and you don't see the context it's in, right? What happens when you when you don't see the context? Well, you're going to take it out of context, right? Well Matthew 24 is part of a much longer discourse and for us to rightly understand what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 about the end of the age, we have to understand everything he's saying before it and even what he's saying after it and so and then ultimately how it ties into the overall structure of Matthew. And when we do that, I think we'll get a much greater vision and understanding and clarity of a lot of things that Jesus is saying in Matthew 24. And so we're going to get into Matthew 24 beginning next Sunday, okay? But we've taken two Sundays to set up to it because what Jesus says in Matthew 21, 22, and 23 is so important for this section is really one seamless whole. So before we jump here into Matthew 23, which we will in a second, Let me just remind you what happened in Matthew 21 and 22. In Matthew 21, Jesus came to Jerusalem, and he came fulfilling the prophecies by riding on a donkey, being hailed as the Son of David, as the Messiah. They're singing, Hosanna, save us now. And he comes, and what does he do? Well, he does two things. He has two prophetic acts. He cleanses the temple, and he curses the fig tree. And we saw how those two prophetic acts are paired together, and it has to do with that uh, Jesus is saying, basically, you know, um, uh, the, the time for the cleansing of the, te- the, the temple has reached a height of wickedness, it needs to be cleansed, Israel's been unfruitful, and so um, it's, it's being cursed, and so I need to do a new thing, basically. And then he goes on and he gives what? He gives two long prophetic parables of judgment concerning the wicked leaders in Israel. A parable of the, the wicked uh, vineyard, uh, people who uh, were running uh, the, the vineyard, the stewards of the vineyard, and then um, he gives a parable uh, concerning those who were invited to the king's wedding feast but refused to come, and how instead then God sent an invitation out to everybody. And we saw how, ultimately, that that was a a picture that Israel's leadership of that time has failed. So Jesus needed to reconstitute Israel into something new. And that was something he began to do when he called 12 disciples, and he grew this new movement. And what he was going to do, he ultimately would tear down that temple and build a new temple, which is you and me, the Church of Jesus Christ, made of Jews and Gentiles, anybody and everybody, right? Filled with the Spirit of God. Well, when we, when we get to uh, Matthew 23, we see he's continuing these prophetic acts. So just as I said Matthew 21 to 25, uh, it, it overlaps with the epoch of temple destruction and new temple. Well, what was the era of temple destruction and new temple? That was the prophetic era. It was, it was the era of Ezekiel. It was the era of Jeremiah. It was the era of these guys like Jeremiah who would literally go in the temple precincts and he would shout these long diatribes to the wicked leaders of that day. And that's exactly what Jesus is doing here. And, and um, what we see is that, you know, though Jesus had used forceful and blunt language against these leaders before, now he takes that condemnation to a whole new level. He, he, he will not countenance their wicked leadership anymore. And so he goes into a full frontal prophetic attacks against all of their shortcomings. He is a greater Jeremiah. He is the greater Ezekiel heralding a soon coming judgment that the temple is under a leprous inspection, that the presence of God is about to, to leave and that a new and greater temple is about to take its place. So let's dive into this diatribe, remember, beginning in Matthew 21 once he made his way to the temple he stays in the temple until the end of the section so he's still in the temple precincts and he'd been just been delivering these uh, prophetic parables against the wicked leaders but now he turns from the leaders and he faces the multitudes and specifically his disciples this is Matthew 23 verse 1 Then Jesus spoke to the multitudes and to his disciples So all right he's turning his attention there they're still in the temple precincts, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. Therefore, whatever they tell you to observe, that observe and do, but do not do according to their works. For they say and do not do. So now, basically, Jesus, he's, he's bringing a covenantal lawsuit against the religious leaders here, and he's going to show everything that is wrong with them. And... We can imagine, you know, as he's turned to the disciples, as he's turned to the multitudes, I can just imagine that behind him, right, the guys he had just been talking to, the Pharisees and the scribes and, and some of the other religious, they're probably kind of, you know, listening in to what he's having to say, right? It's not like these statements he's making against them, they're not hearing, oh, they're, they're hearing him, they're hearing him, they're just not in view, right? And uh, the scribes, we got to remember, who are the scribes? The scribes were the experts of interpretation in the law at Jesus' time. Some of what they had to say was good, and Jesus agreed with it. Other things they had to say was not good, and Jesus condemned it. Because they were experts in Hebrew in the scriptures, they had the privilege of that time of what Jesus said was sitting in Moses' seat, meaning they were supposed to be the authoritative teachers in Israel who helped apply God's word to Israel, In a way that accorded with the truth of their time. What Jesus says at the outset here almost sounds like he is telling his disciples to observe and do whatever the scribes and Pharisees say. But the problem is that can't be the case. Why? For up until this point in the Gospel of Matthew, he had rebuked the scribes and Pharisees over and over again for their various teachings. For instance, in Matthew chapter 12, he condemned their view of the Sabbath. In Matthew chapter 15, he condemned their view of the purity laws. In Matthew chapter 19, he condemned their views of the divorce, their view of the divorce law. And in chapter 16, he condemned them in many more general terms. And so I think rather than Jesus is saying, hey, you guys need to listen to what they say because they sit in Moses' seat, I think he's, he's really saying something more of this effect. He's saying, When they publicly read God's word, observe and do it, but then don't do what they do with it. For they add their own man-made traditions and make God's word void by their own man-made traditions. This is where we get the idea of Pharisaism, right? when you add things to the word of god right that the word of god doesn't explicitly say you might draw principles to the word of god but you know what you got to say that's a principle the word of god doesn't say that it's kind of like people you know to put it in a modern sense even in the evangelical realm people who say right you can't sm- smoke or drink that's a sin Nowhere in the Bible does it say that, right? That might be an application you want to draw for your own personal life, not smoke and drink. That might be good and healthy and well. But the Bible doesn't say that. So I'll never say that because I'd be a Pharisee and I'd be sinning if I said that. Okay? But the Pharisees did a whole lot of stuff like that, that. And so, you know, he goes on to explain how these leaders nullify the Word of God by their traditions. And this is what he says in verse 4. He says, For they bind heavy burdens, hard to bear. And lay them on men's shoulders, but they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. Whew. Now, this, of course, is a big contrast to Jesus, right? Because Jesus had said in Matthew eleven twenty-eight, 28, Come to me, all you who weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, in contrast, corrupted leadership among God's people are not going to be people who help other people's burdens, but they're going to burden them some more, right? With all these other religious minutia that they're placing on the people of God. And Jesus is like, that is not good, right? Jesus had also said concerning the Sabbath, you know, they were were making man subservient to the Sabbath. But Jesus said man wasn't made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, right? You know... He understands that the love of God and neighbor takes precedent over the more minor matters of the law. So it continues in verse 5. But all the works they do to be seen by men. They make the phylacteries broad and enlarge the borders of their garment. Let's just stop right there. You know, here's the thing. Jesus isn't uh, upset when we make a public display of goodness. In fact, we should be making public displays of goodness all the time. He said in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, 16, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works, right? He wants people to see your good works. But the purpose of living a public and bold Christian life is so that those who see our good works might do what? Might glorify the Father who is in heaven. The scribes and Pharisees, on the other hand, were looking to gain glory from men for their good works, right? And it wasn't their good works of love, but rather their self-righteous, pompous, outward show. That's what they really wanted to gain attention for. Look how good a Christian I am, or right? look how good a a Jew I am, a, 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 a person of God. In Matthew 6, Jesus had critiqued their long public prayers in their attempt to draw attention to themselves when they were fasting, right? He said, if you want to make a long prayer, well, that's not a good work. You should be doing that in private in your, in your prayer closet before God. If you're fasting, you don't need to make everybody know you're fasting. Maybe you, you need to make, you know, if, if someone is, you know, there might be occasions where you need to let people know you're fasting, but you need, don't promote your fasting to everybody, right? And now he adds how they would have larger phylac- have they'd have larger phylacteries and tassels than other Jews, seeking to draw attention to themselves, and suggest that more of God's word and righteousness was in them than everybody else. What was a phylactery? It was it was really it was it was uh, it was the word literally means a, a charm box, but it was it was like a leather case that they would make in literal ful- fulfillment of a couple passages from from Deuteronomy and they would put it on their forehead, and they would put it on their arms. In fact, some religious Jews still do it today, right? And uh, what would be contained in those boxes uh, was uh, scriptures of of, of the Word of God. And the scribes and Pharisees, apparently, they would make theirs a little bit bigger than everybody else's, like saying, I got more of God's Word in me. I'm drawing more attention just to how spiritual I am. I think that was a wrong application of Deuteronomy in general. I don't think God ever wanted people to put leather boxes on their head or forms. In fact, he never says to put a leather box on it. Uh, But uh, I think he was saying he wants it in people's minds and he wants it in people's heart and he wants to show it through their actions, okay? But, you know, they were just making this uh, a fleshly thing. And, and, And then their tassels, the tassels at the end of the garments were simply meant to be a personal reminder of God's word to the wearer. So when they looked at the tassels, they would be reminded, oh yeah, you know, I'm supposed to walk according to his commands because I love the Lord and I want to do what he wants me to do. But what would the Pharisees and scribes do? They would enlarge their tassels, right? <laughs> Trying to, to let everyone else know just how righteous they were, that they were especially um, making sure to take care of the details of God's law. And yet the the the, the great <laughs> Uh irony of the whole thing is Jesus constantly throughout this diatribe, he will call them blind, right? They make these things so big, saying like they follow God's law, and yet they're completely blind to God's law. They're neglecting the most important matters of God's law. And so they're, they're hypocrites. Look what he goes on to say in verse 6. They love the best places at feasts, the best seats in the synagogues, greetings in the marketplaces, and to be called by men, Rabbi, Rabbi. So, meaning what? They desired this sort of preferential treatment. In fact, in the book of James, we are told that to treat a rich and poor person differently is to show partiality and to become a judge with evil thoughts. We should never judge uh, anybody different. We're all made in the image of God, right? And leaders of God's people should not seek preferential treatment or people looking to them as if, they're, as if that leader is their ultimate guide. Rather, a true leader of God's flock will always be people who point away from themselves to the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, right? The moment that people begin to follow the cult of personality is the moment they'll begin to stumble at some point in life, okay? Here's the thing. I I tell you guys this, right? Do not follow me, right? Follow Jesus, right? Do not not have uh, your relationship with God vicariously through any leader, but make sure that you take time to develop your own relationship with the Lord Jesus, that you make time uh, to get in personal prayer, that you make time to get into the Word, and so that He ultimately, right, the Holy Spirit is your teacher, the Word is your teacher. Yes, Jesus gifts teachers under the church. He gives pastors. He gives uh, these beautiful blessings, but they are only secondary to who God ultimately is, right? So He goes on to say this in verse 8. He says this, But you... Do not be called rabbi, for one is your teacher, the Christ, and you are all brethren. Do not call anyone on earth your father, for one is your father who is in heaven. And do not be called teachers, for one is your teacher, the Christ, but he who is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." So the scribes and the Pharisees should have been seeking the honor that comes from God alone. Now when Jesus says don't call anyone father, is he saying we can't call our earthly father father? I don't think that it was what he's saying. I think he's saying when we speak of the term metaphorically that we have one spiritual father and that you know, uh, you're calling them that because you depend on them. Uh, so, so we need to be careful about calling people on earth our, our spiritual father. It, 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 if it's in, in any way directing away from that God alone is our Father, right? Paul said, he said to the Corinthians, I become a father unto you. There is a sense of spiritual fathership. There, there is a sense, right, where, where, where Jesus has placed these authorities over people. But the problem is is when the people in authority are, who have those giftings or have those positions, is the problem is when they fall in love with those titles, right? And the problem is, is when they are trying to always gain respect. No, you must call me this. You must call me that, right? And, and it's almost like this cult-like personality where this person is puffed up in pride about their titles and everything. That seems to be what's going on with the scribes and Pharisees. I remember, you know, growing up, uh, many of you know Pastor Will, right? He was the founding pastor of this church. And Pastor Will, he would always tell people, he'd always tell me, he'd say, don't call me pastor, don't call me pastor. And so I said, okay. You know, I think, I think he just really had this, these, these verses internalized from Jesus in him. And he's like, man, I just don't want to take anything away from Jesus as the chief pastor, as the chief shepherd over the flock, right? And so I understand his heart there, and it, 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 it's really beautiful. We should respect an office, but never allow the office to make someone bloated in pride uh, where we're overly reverent of that office, okay? Okay, let's look uh, at the next three verses. Verse 13. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, and you neither go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, For you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. This is Jesus speaking. The meek and mild Jesus, right? You know, he gives eight woes here, and these are his first three woes. You know the and like I said, this is really his prophetic section of Matthew. And the prophets, one thing you, you, you see when you read the prophets, is that they were known for giving woes. In fact, Isaiah gives a series of six woes against the ungodly in Isaiah 5. In one of God's most graphic denunciations of the people of Jerusalem, where he's describing them really in R-rated terms, Ezekiel 16, this is what he says in Ezekiel 16, 23. Then it was so, after all your wickedness, Woe, woe to you, says the Lord God, that you also built for yourself a shrine and made a high place for yourself in every street. And he's really talking about there, Ezekiel is talking about not only how the Jerusalem streets were filled with shrine, but even the temple, it had become a place of idolatry. And that's what had happened in the day of Jesus. So Jesus, just like Ezekiel, is getting up and he's shouting, woe, woe. Jeremiah, also, the prophet, gives a woe to the shepherds or leaders of Israel in Jerusalem, just as Jesus did. He says this in Jeremiah 23:1. "Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, says the Lord. And just as the temple would come crumbling down in Ezekiel and Jeremiah's day because of that wicked leadership, so it would in Jesus' day. Now there are eight woes in total that Jesus is give, that Jesus gives here. Earlier in Matthew, uh, Jesus' is teaching, the, his first teaching is in Matthew chapter 5, and you know how his teaching begins? It begins with eight blessings, not eight woes, eight blessings, we call them the Beatitudes. And interestingly, when you compare the eight woes of his last teaching with the eight blessings of his first teaching, you know what you see? Boop, they overlap like that. One goes with one, two goes with two, three. They, they perfectly parallel. I don't have time to go through it all, but basically let me just read you the, the first and in, in the last one. Um, uh, the first woe-condemns scribes because they shut off the kingdom of heaven from men, whereas the first beatitude is that the humble, or the poor in spirit, have entrance into the kingdom of heaven, Right? So the poor in spirit enter the kingdom of heaven, the scribes and Pharisees, and they're blessed. The scribes and Pharisees are not blessed. They are condemned because they shut the kingdom of God in people's faces. How about the last woe? It condemns the scribes and Pharisees for persecuting and killing the prophets. Um, They will ultimately culminate that work in killing the greatest prophet, Jesus. Well, the eighth beatitude blesses those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness. And it goes... Uh, goes on to bless those who, like the prophets, are reviled, persecuted, and lied about for the sake of the kingdom. So, throughout these woes, Jesus refers to the Jewish leaders as hypocrites seven times. They're hypocrites. That's, uh, I think, common for people to understand a Pharisee. A a Pharisee is a hypocrite. What is a hypocrite? And so, the fact that they're mentioned hypocrites seven times, it's like the fullness of hypocrisy. The word hypocrite, it came from the theater at that time, and it referred to an actor wearing a mask. That was literally a hypocrite, an actor wearing a mask. So Jesus was using it to refer to people who pretended to be righteous, but weren't really righteous, right? They were just play-acting righteousness. Outwardly, they appeared like eminent men, but inwardly, they were rotten to the core. In fact, They were sons of hell, and they were making other sons of hell. And all their evangelism was to make people in their own image. Well, let's read verse 16, picking up with the fourth woe. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, Whoever swears by the temple, it is nothing. (laughs) But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind. For which is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifies the gold? And whoever swears by the altar, it is nothing. But whoever swears by the gift that is on it is obliged to perform it. Fools and blind, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifies the gift? Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears by it and by all things on it. He who swears by the temple swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And he who swears by heaven swears by the throne of God and him who sits in it. (laughs) What is he doing here? He's launching into a long diatribe here about their foolish reasoning concerning taking of oaths. In this woe, he shows how the Jewish experts do not understand even the basics of how the temple functions. And um, they misunderstand the point of of what it means to take God's name in vain in general. So they're doubly blind and they're doubly foolish. It is not uh, the sacrifice that is more holy than the altar. It is the altar, which has God's fire on it, that he lit, that makes the sacrifice holy. Okay? It is not the gold that they placed in the temple that makes the temple holy. Rather, it is the temple itself in which God dwells that makes the gold holy. Why? Because the temple is a picture. It is the blueprint, as, as God gave on, on the top of, of, of Mount Sinai. It is a blueprint of the greater temple of heaven. It is a picture of the heavenly place. Something is made holy because it is in the temple, not because it is brought to the he- temple. I mean, this is why you and I are made holy, right? We're holy uh, because the Spirit of God is dwelling inside of us, right? We could draw that similar point uh, that Jesus is making right here. So by means of their distinctions, the Pharisees were seeking to distinguish between serious and non-serious oaths. If they swore a promise by the sanctuary, they felt free to break it. And yet, the sanctuary was more holy than the other things. And what Jesus is saying is, you guys are silly. You should let your yes be yes and your no be no. You're trying to think of ways you can make lesser oaths so you can break and cheat people and all these sorts of things. That's that's stupid. You're blind. You fools. You children of the devil. Jesus didn't mince words, right? We're so afraid today in our culture, right? We got to be politically correct about everything. Jesus wouldn't fared well in, in 21st century America, right? He'd be in jail right now, probably. (laughs) Okay, um, verse 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faith. These you ought to have done without leaving the others undone. Blind guides who strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. So, you know, as I mentioned uh, th- this earlier, of course, you know, the, the Jews, they would give a tenth of all, all that they grew in the land. Uh, but sadly, though, they, uh, the, the Pharisees here were diligent in that matter. They weren't diligent about the more important aspects of the law. They were making mountains out of molehills and molehills out of mountains. They didn't understand it, the weighted nature of God's law. So everything for them became about performance, hypocritical, outward religion. But Jesus had shown throughout his ministry that while all of God's word is true and all of God's word is authoritative, all of God's word does not carry the same weight of importance. Right? There are weighted tiers to Scripture. There are matters of greater importance. There are weightier matters of the law. This is what what Jesus was asked, what is the greatest commandment? What does that mean? It means, ultimately, that one commandment does function as something that is more important than another commandment, right? Even though all the commandments are from God. And what does he say the greatest commandment is? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second is like unto it, love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus would add on to that, of course, a new commandment I give unto you that you love one another, even as I loved you. And so Jesus, he, he says, You guys, by the way you're acting, by the way you're going about ministering to people, you are neglecting the mount, the mountainous important things of the law. Faith, justice, mercy. And instead, you're just implementing tithing herbs you're concerned that everybody's tithing their herbs and you're not concerned with justice rolling on the streets like a mighty river I mean this was like a big theme in all the prophets they wanted to see justice to flow everywhere In fact Micah when he summarizes what is of greatest importance in the law He says this in Micah 6 8 he has shown you O man what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justly To love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. What does it mean to walk humbly with your God? It means to have faith, justice, mercy, faith. Jesus is just repeating Micah. The prophets in the Old Testament were constantly trying to steer the people of God back from outward hypocritical religion to matters of the heart. Okay, To matters of the heart. It is so easy to become a religious hypocrite. It is so easy to playact your Christianity, but what does God say? I want you to come back to the heart of worship, right? In fact, one of Jesus' favorite verses that he quotes multiple times in the Gospels is from Hosea. And whenever he's dealing with the Pharisees and scribes, these hypocritical play actors, he reminds them of this verse from Hosea, which says this, Hosea 6, verse 6. I desire mercy and not sacrifice and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings, right? Now ultimately, the sacrifice in the burnt offering, if they really understood what they meant, they would, have underst- they would have understood that those two pointed towards mercy and the knowledge of God. Because in the in the in um The sacrifice, what you would do is you would always give whatever sacrifice you offered at the temple, you would always place the internal organs on the altar for God first, which symbolized what? The heart of the offerer belonged to God. So even in the religious ritual, they were taught of heartfelt worship unto God. They were taught to not be hypocritical Pharisees. And so I think this is what you know, the prophets are getting at, not that the sacrificial system was bad, but that it was misunderstood, and that it's real, you know, importance was all about getting us back to the place of love and mercy towards one another, and having our heart offered as a sacrifice unto God, right? So Jesus said the scribes and Pharisees, they strain out a gnat, and they swallow a camel. The gnat was the smallest creature in Israel. The camel was the largest creature in Israel, meaning their focus in life and in ministry, it's way off, right? They didn't understand what was of utmost importance to God, and God was really upset about that. In Aramaic, the way Jesus would have said this in Aramaic was, You swallowed a gamla and strained out a a galma. It almost sounds the same, right? It was like a pun. And I'm sure as he's saying this to uh, the multitudes and the disciples, <laughs> right, they get a laugh out of it, right? They're swallowing, uh, they're straining out a galma and, and straining out a kamla, right? Uh, but that's what happens when, when we're religious. we we got to stay away from being religious, hypocrites. But Jesus wasn't finished with them, man. He's been tough on them so far, but he's, getting, he's about to get even tougher, man. This is, he's about, he hasn't even reached his crescendo yet. Verse 25. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you cleanse the outside of the cup and dish, but inside they are full of extortion and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside of them may be clean also. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which indeed appear beautiful outwardly, but inside are full of dead men's bones and all uncleanness. Even so, you also outwardly appear righteous to men, but inside you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would have not been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. We'll get to what he says about that in a minute. But once again, he's highlighting their hypocrisy. He basically says, you guys are dead men walking. You're a bunch of zombies, right? And because you're a bunch of zombies, there's about to be a zombie apocalypse, right? And the whole house is about to come crashing down. And, you know, it's interesting. He, He talks about how, you know, they're filthy inwardly, full of dead men's bones. And man, throughout the Bible, is compared to pottery, especially clay pottery, seeing that we are made of clay. And one interesting part of the Holiness Code in Leviticus 11 has to do with unclean pots, metal and clay pots. If something unclean drops into a metal pot, it has to be scoured on the inside, if it is to be considered clean again. Otherwise, though, the metal pot might appear the most glorious, beautiful thing on the outside. If it has some little defect, if some little unclean animal, like a gnat, died and dropped in the pot, boop, it's unclean. In God's eyes, it's a filthy, rotten piece of pottery. But it had to be cleaned on the inside. And, and, and the Israelites had to follow these laws scrupulously, right? And, and if, if it was a clay pot and it got clean on the inside, they couldn't scour it, so they just had to break it and get a new clay pot. You think God was concerned with pots? Like, like, like Paul says, was God concerned with the oxen? No, he's concerned about pots, you and me, right? He was training them by having them go through those rituals that what was most important was that they had a new heart that was placed inside of them, that they had all their sins forgiven, that they were clean on the inside, that they had a heart of worship, right? That they just didn't have that pharisaical Hypocritical, outwardly beautiful, performative religion that Jesus constantly condemns. Okay? So let's move on to verse 31. Therefore, you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. Serpents, brood of vipers, how can you escape the condemnation of hell? Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. He's talking about Christians here. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city, that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth from the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. And he drops his mic. That's the end of his speech. (laughs) That's the last thing he ever says to them. Assuredly, I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. This. You know what this generation means? It's really easy. It means this generation. (laughs) It means them. He means upon you guys. It doesn't mean, because you guys did all this, I'm going to send this, I'm going to destroy 5,000 years from now. That generation, no, this generation. It's not confusing, it's really easy. So when we get to Jesus talking about this generation in Matthew 24, we'll see, it's not confusing. It's really easy. Okay, so, what does Jesus say? He says, he calls them, a brood of vipers. Who else called these guys a brood of vipers? Remember? John the Baptist. John the Baptist. He calls them serpents. Who was a serpent? Satan. <laughs> How can you escape the condemnation of hell? Who else is going... Who else can't escape the condemnation of hell? Satan. What is Revelation 20 going to show us? We'll see that those who are like these guys... Guess where they're thrown into? The lake of fire. Who was thrown into the lake of fire? Satan. They're not going to... Unless they repent. There would be some of them who repented. On the Sanhedrin, we know Joseph of Arimathea, Nicodemus. We know according to Acts chapter 6 that many of the priests became obedient after the Holy Spirit fell. It wasn't that Jesus was done with them. He was just saying, the judgment has come. Your cup of indignation, of righteous wrath, it is about full. It's almost filled to the brim. By the end of this generation, it's going to be full. And then that cup of wrath, it's going to be poured over. You know what we find in the book of Revelation? We find seven vials, bowls, chalices of wrath. And when they're poured over, what happens? Pfft, the great wicked city where our Lord was crucified is destroyed. We'll get to that when, more when we get into the book of Revelation. But, but that's an illusion. Those cups of wrath are illusion actually partially here to Matthew 23. Now, um, in, in Genesis 15, when God is making a covenant with Abraham, uh, this is what God says to Abraham. In verse 16, Genesis 15, 16, he, he he prophesies to Abraham that your children are going to have to go into Egypt, but he says this, but in the fourth generation they shall return here to the promised land, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Meaning what? They had not filled up the measure of their wrath yet. The Amorites needed four generations to do it. How many generations did the scribes and the Pharisees need? They needed one generation. Amorites needed four. Scribes and Pharisees needed one. What does Paul say to the Thessalonians? First Thessalonians 2, verse 14. For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God, which are in Judea in Christ Jesus. For you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans, who killed both the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and had persecuted us, just as Jesus said they would, We just read it. And they do not please God and are contrary to all men, verse 16, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they may be saved, so as always to what? To fill up the measure of their sins, but wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. Meaning it was already beginning to break out at the time Paul was writing that, and it was about to be fully poured out. They were filling up the measure of their sins. It was about to pour over. Jesus had already taken the consequence of the wrath for them. Anyone who came to him from refuge, they'd be saved, right? But on those who didn't, the cup of the wrath would be tipped over. And we would see that ties into the theme of the end of the age. And we're really going to unpack that the next two Sundays what exactly this end of the age is so we're going to wrap up this morning with one last verse it's in Matthew 2337 so after Jesus has that mic drop moment now he is like Jeremiah you know Jeremiah went on these long angry diatribes from God's heart but really he was a man who wept. He was called the weeping prophet. In fact, he wrote the whole book of weeping, Lamentations, where he just cried through it all. He was weeping, and he wrote five acrostic poems about the destruction of Jerusalem, weeping as he's writing it. And this is what the greater Jeremiah does after he says all this in verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who were sent to her, how often i wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing see your house is left to you desolate for i say to you you shall see me no more till you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the lord and then we'll told we'll see and we'll get in, we'll pick up with this verse actually next sunday and we'll see What happens is from that moment, he walks out of the temple precincts and he walks to the Mount of Olives, and all of the rest of the discourse will be facing the temple now from a different vantage point, from a different perspective. And he'll still be speaking on things regarding the temple. And what is so interesting about this is that He says, see, I have left your house to you desolate. Why was it desolate? Because he, as the glory of God, was leaving the temple precincts. And he was going, and he was going to sit on the Mount of Olives. Why is this important? Because under the first temple, and under Solomon, um, when Ezekiel was prophesying, he had a spiritual vision. And right before the temple was destroyed, the presence of God lifted up on its chariot throne in his spiritual vision, and it exited the temple, and it went, and you know where it sat? On the Mount of Olives. Let me read it to you. It's Ezekiel 11.23. Ezekiel says, And the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city. He, he had previously, in chapter 10, talked about how this was in the temple, how it moved from the Holy of Holies, then to the courtyard, and now it moves where? and stood on the mountain, which is on the east side of the city. That is the Mount of Olives. So ultimately, what does this all mean to us? Remember, you and I are the new vine dressers. Jesus says, I will give it to a nation that bears its fruit, which is the church, you and I. When we read this chapter, we are reminded that we must not imitate the Pharisees and scribes, but rather the way of Jesus. We are reminded that we are God's temple and that we must be good stewards of that temple, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians. There should be a pure crystal river of water of life that flows out from us To the world, not the polluting, self-righteous, hypocritical waters of the Pharisee, but rather the waters of love and joy and peace and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control and miracles and healings and power and wonder, right? And hope and faith and love. You and I have a great responsibility, and that responsibility is to look unto Jesus and as we look unto Jesus, to follow Jesus. Because I tell you what, we're living in the new age. We're living in the new covenant. We have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, Hebrews 12 says. We have come to Mount Zion. We, we, uh, you know, we have been registered in heaven, amen? We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. We are sons of God, and we are called to reign in this life, so I tell you what, I have a very optimistic perspective about the church, that the church is going to march forward in victory, that when Daniel 2 says that the kingdom of God, that it would start as a little pebble that grows into a great mountain, I feel like we're just, a, just a, a still a little mountain. I think we got go. I, I think we got a lot bigger way to go, right? just as Jesus says in Matthew 13 that it starts as a little tree but grows into a great big tree for all the birds of the earth to come and and rest on, we're still a medium-sized tree, okay? We got a lot longer way to go. We got a lot bigger way to go. We got a lot more glorious things that God, by the Holy Spirit, wants to do through you and me. So we got to look unto Jesus And we got to pursue those things in faith and in hope and see God work in the lives of those, in our lives and the lives of those around us. Amen? So we're going to take communion. Anyone here not have a communion element, go ahead and raise your hand.